Take your Bible, please, and meet me in Acts chapter 4. And I want to begin our time together this morning with a question. One that pertains to your faith and your growth in the Lord. And it's a simple question, and it's simply, what helps you grow in your faith? Anyone who'd want to answer that, just throw it. What, what helps you grow in your faith? Reading the Word? Prayer, trials, and tribulations? Suffering? Being here? Submitting your will to God? Where do you look? Or what do you do? Or to whom do you go? to grow in the Lord. I, I begin with that because that's the question Barna asked in a recent survey. And like our makeshift survey this morning, some of the answers were typical and expected, things like prayer and Bible study and, and other spiritual disciplines. Unfortunately, however, though it was mentioned here this morning, unfortunately, however, most Americans did not mention church as a means of growth to their faith in Christ. Sadly, and somewhat surprisingly, church wasn't even among the top ten answers given. Even more telling is that among those surveyed, over half, 51%, say that church attendance is not important, while many of those who do attend do so only about once every four to six weeks. And this, this according to this survey, this is now causing pastors and church leaders to account for sporadic attendance in their ministry planning. Can I let you in on a little secret this morning? <laughs> you are among the minority who still believe church attendance is important. Can I tell you another secret? I am among the pastors who grow anxious about these things. Every week, I keep a mental list. I don't want to do this. It just happens. Every week, I keep a mental list of those I know who won't be here because either they're sick or they're traveling or something came up, like a holiday weekend. And I wonder what it will mean for our fellowship and ministry. I just want to give you, I'm sorry if I'm bursting any bubbles, but I just want to give you a peek inside a pastor's head on Sunday mornings. I'd love to tell you that we're deep in prayer, that we're just chomping at the bit to preach, and that we are consumed, overwhelmed with a heart of worship. And certainly we do pray, and we do prepare to preach, 
and we do love gathering with the congregation to worship God, but on any given Sunday, sometimes what's foremost on our minds is something much simpler. As we just wonder to ourselves, is anyone going to show? And will it make any difference? You see, church attendance is not the most important metric. Important, but not the most important. What matters most is what happens in the lives of those who attend. As we will see in this morning's scripture, there are two basic ways to view church, and your particular view, your particular view, uh, will certainly affect your life, but also the lives of those around you, because church is community, and you're a necessary part of what God is doing in and through the community. So let's read this together. Acts chapter 4, begin at uh, uh, verse 32. And then we're going to move into Acts chapter 5 and conclude with verse 11. So Acts chapter 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out, and they buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard 
of these things. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you again for our time this morning. And as we often do, we just again want to thank you for the gift of the church. This community of believers from just different walks of life who come together and we have this commonality in Christ and that makes all the difference. Thank you that you've called us to yourself and you've placed us with other people who kind of walk alongside us and live with us and together we're learning how to live by faith and advance the work of the gospel and how truly, Lord, we need each other. You've created it that way. You've designed it that way. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the people of East Parkway Church. We pray for those who are here this morning and even those who couldn't make it this morning for one reason or another. And we ask, God, that you would continue to strengthen the ties that that bind us together. And may there be even many more of them in the years to come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, there are two examples placed before us, one good and one bad. The good comes first and is described in verses 32 through 37. Here we learn how members of the Jerusalem church related to one another. Their response or their experience was one of unity, compassion, and tremendous generosity. Those who believed, we're told, were of one heart and soul. When I read this, I immediately think of marriage. In marriage, two people become one. Both the husband and the wife maintain their individuality, but the man and the woman uh, still retain their, their, their own personhood and personalities, their unique quirks, um, uh, their, their strengths and their areas of weakness, and yet they each enter into a relationship that is so intensely personal that their two lives essentially become one. Sally and I, like many of you, have grown to think like each other, behave like each other, appreciate and anticipate each other. We complete each other's sentences, which sometimes bugs me, because we have grown in oneness over the years. Especially as we've grown in Christ together. Now, relationships in the church are kind of like that. Well, not to the same degree as marriage, because that would be weird. Relationships in the church are meant by God to be so interconnected that it's as if the many are one. When I come into relationship with Christ and you come into relationship with Christ, we automatically enter into relationship with one another. The, the, the more I grow into Christ, the more you grow into Christ, the closer you and I become. The commonality we share in Jesus, this oneness is such 
that even though we are different and uh, in different seasons of life and from different backgrounds, we nonetheless have all things in common because whatever our differences may be, we are one in the Lord. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, declares there is neither Jew nor Greek. Those are racial differences. There is neither slave nor free. Those are societal or class differences. There is neither male and female. Those are gender differences. For you are all one in Christ. Now, obviously, this isn't saying that there aren't differences in race. There are. It's not saying that there aren't differences in our socioeconomic situations. There are. It's not saying that there aren't differences in gender. There are, obviously. But what it's saying is that our relationship to Jesus brings us into a relationship uh, with one another that puts us all on equal footing. I want you to see how the oneness that marked the Jerusalem church uh, extended to include even their personal belongings. For no one said that anything was his own, but they had everything in common. Believers, you see, the full number of them were told, not some, but all, united together across social and economic lines. Believers from different races and cultures took interest in the well-being of each other, With great power, the apostles were testifying to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Wow. There was not a needy person among them. Verse 34, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Let me start with what this isn't saying. This isn't saying that we must all go home and sell all our belongings and give all the money to the church. In fact, as we as we continue our, our way through the book of Acts, and we've seen, of course, in other areas of the New Testament and Old, uh, believers in Christ, those who trusted the Lord, at times owned things. They had ha- homes and lands and, and, and stuff. So it's not saying that. Nor is it promoting communism, as some detractors have suggested. In communist societies, you don't own anything. And you're forced under law to give to the state. Here, however, there were owners of lands and houses. People owned things. And some chose to sell sell them and donate the proceeds, not because they had to, but because they wanted to. They gave willingly, they gave joyfully, and they gave generously. Now certainly some of this is specific to that church because remember, the church was brand new and people were uh, people from all over were coming to faith in Christ rapidly. Like they were coming to faith in Christ, the numbers were growing at a tremendous rate. 
and, and, and the church was growing so quickly and people's lives were changing so dramatically that many of them just, many of them found themselves in this just radical state of transition. Like everything had been turned upside down. Remember, some traveled from other parts of the world, like we read in chapter two, they likely hadn't returned home yet, and maybe even some had relocated. Some were displaced, some were homeless, and yet, according to verse 32, there was not a needy person among them because others in the church who had the means freely gave generously to all. Now that's where it applies to us and to our church. Our situation may not be like theirs, but a heart of compassion and a willingness to meet needs as they arise should characterize any church, including ours, right? Like them, we're to see ourselves as stewards of our possessions, not hoarders of material things. And we're to give unto others as unto the Lord because God is compassionate with us. Our resources uh, become, a, become means of compassion for others. And this attitude of free and generous giving is perfectly illustrated by a man we're introduced to in verse 36. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now you may not recognize the name Barnabas because he becomes a prominent member in the church and in the book of Acts. As we'll see later, it was Barnabas whom God used to introduce the newly converted Paul to the rest of the apostles when many in the church were suspect of Paul because he had ravaged the church before his conversion. It was Barnabas who brought Paul to Antioch to help reach non-Jewish people with the truth of Jesus. It was Barnabas who accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey, and later Barnabas stood up for the young John Mark when Paul didn't want to take him on their next journey. Barnabas, it seems, was always looking out for someone else. So it comes as no real surprise to see him selling some land to help meet the needs of the church. And it's no wonder the apostles called him the son of encouragement. Huh. What a name. I looked up the meaning of encouragement this week, and the definition is the action of giving someone support, confidence, or hope. The act of giving someone support, confidence, or hope. That's what Barnabas is doing. That's what others in the church were doing. And that's what we do when we give. You know, I love that one of the benefits of a systematic 
Bible teaching and preaching is that you don't choose the text. It chooses you. You just preach what's next. Which means that as you work through the Scriptures, undoubtedly you're going to touch on every possible issue or topic. You can't pick and choose, and you can't avoid them. And so here, I think, we have this timely opportunity to just touch on the issue of giving. Just touch on it briefly. When we give to the church, we are supporting the ministry of the church. And the church's ministry, the church's ministry, the goal, the church's ministry instills confidence in God. Remember, the definition of encouragement is someone who, who supports another through, or the action of giving su someone support, confidence, or hope. So, the church's ministry instills confidence in God. It's bringing faith and hope into people's lives as they look not to lesser things for the needs of their soul, but to God who meets, who alone can meet its deepest longings. Giving the church, giving to the church, if there's a way to put it this way, under the old covenant, it was required. It's not, at least not explicitly, under the new, and yet really it's not optional. So if there's a way for it to be not required and not optional, that's kind of the space we're in. Giving to the church is far more than putting money in the offering bag or writing a check or scheduling payments online, recurring payments online. Those are ways to give, but church, giving itself is a means of encouraging others in Christ. We've got to see that. We've got to become like Barnabas and encourage others through giving. Now, many of you are very generous givers. You are. I don't know who you are specifically because I don't want to. I've never wanted to. I don't need to bring upon myself the temptations and complications that would come if I knew who gave what. But I see the results of your giving. And I know there are generous givers, very generous givers. So I want to commend you, and I also want to encourage those who may not be giving or not giving as regularly or as generously. I want you, I want all of us to experience what Barnabas and others experienced by giving to the church. Okay. The Lord, we're told, loves a cheerful giver. The disposition of God toward those who place their trust in Christ and consequently give to the ministry of Christ's church, not begrudgingly, 
not dragging their feet, not because the pastor told them they had to, but with joy and pleasure. The disposition toward those givers is pure love. God's disposition toward those kind of givers is pure love. He loves it when we give because in a very real way it expresses appreciation for how much He's given to us and because it shows how much we care for each other and for God's mission in the world. God loves a cheerful giver, the Bible says, but the antithesis of that, I think, is worth considering also. What do we learn here about God's disposition or the reluctant giver. Or the stingy giver. Or the person who doesn't give at all. If God loves a cheerful giver, what does he think about the half-hearted giver? Or the person who's, in whose heart there is blatant hypocrisy? promise this isn't a giving sermon. This is a sermon aimed at the heart. Chapter 5, notice, begins with the word but. It's a coordinating conjunction used to connect opposing ideas. And so here we have this contrast between Barnabas in chapter 4 and a married couple in chapter 5 whose names were Ananias and Sapphira. Like Barnabas and those in chapter 4, Ananias also brought a financial gift and likewise presented it to the apostles. According to verse 2, however, he brought only a part of the gift, yet acted as if it was the whole thing. Now, Peter, obviously, he's giving, give, he, he was given insight from God. He saw through the deception and pinpointed Ananias's hypocrisy. Though Ananias gave the appearance of caring for the church, his heart, Peter says, was actually under the devil's sway. In other words, money and material belongings held an unhealthy place in Ananias's heart, and the devil capitalized on that. This wasn't accidental. It wasn't that Ananias accidentally miscounted the proceeds from the sale of his property. No, he had contrived this whole deception in his heart and knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, he was under no obligation to give anything. As Peter put it, the property was his before it was sold and the money was his after it was sold. Therefore, he could have done with it whatever he chose But instead, he did what so many people do today. He gave the appearance of godliness when he wasn't obeying God at all. You see that? His sin was not that he held back some of the money. It was that he put on a show by appearing generous when in fact he was selfish and hypocritical. And suddenly, suddenly, without warning, 
He's struck dead. Now, a few hours later, his wife, Sapphira, enters the scene, unaware of what transpired. And Peter said to her, verse 8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Now, I want you to notice what, what Peter does here. I think Peter questions Sapphira much like a parent would question his or her child uh, when, who, who they know has bis- misbehaved. You know what I'm saying? It's like when when I know, I'm not thinking of any one child in particular, when I know that that my son or one of my daughters has done something wrong and I confront them with it, what I'm really hoping for is honesty and contrition. I'm not looking to nail them. You know what I'm saying? I want them to come clean so they can deal with it, so we can all deal with it and we can grow from it. But I don't always reveal what I know from the start because that may shortcut the response that needs to take place in their heart. So instead I ask a question, not to entrap my child, to give them an opportunity to come clean. And I think that's what Peter's doing here. He questions Sapphira in the hope that she'll admit her wrong and seek God's forgiveness, but instead she persists in her lie. One of the most memorable consequences I ever received was the time when my parents caught me in a lie. I was, I don't know, nine or ten, maybe. And I was supposed to be home from a friend's house at a certain time. And when I showed up late and was questioned about it, I made all sorts of excuses and none of them were true. I remember this to this day. I can remember, I can remember being on my bike, riding home, contriving my spiel. Or just coming up with it. Like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say if they say this? What am I going to say if they say that? And my parents knew I lied. To this day, I don't know how they knew. And they questioned again, and I lied again. And the consequence of my lie was necessarily severe. Because if a person can't trust what you say, they can't trust you at all. And my parents needed to teach me that. Unfortunately, Sapphira kept to her lie. But unlike me, who lived to tell about it, she didn't. She had conspired with her husband to test the Spirit of the Lord. The word test there means to provoke or tempt. It's the same word used of Satan when he provoked or tempted Jesus three times in the wilderness. 
It's the same word often used of the Pharisees who were always trying to trap Jesus. In other words, though, though they gave the appearance of giving to God, they were basically denying God by the hypocrisy of their hearts. And like her husband, Sapphira fell down dead and they were buried side by side. Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I bet. I mean, think about it. If people in the church suddenly dropped dead, it would get your attention. If God immediately, immediately took the life of someone in our church who gave the appearance of godliness, but whose heart was far from Him, we'd take notice. And I guarantee we'd shape up. You see, God cares about the posture of your heart and about the purity of His church. And so great fear, we're told, great fear. And and by the way, this isn't the word for reverence and awe. It's not that kind of fear. It's phobos. Great fear came upon the whole church. but not just the church. It appears to have affected the neighboring community also who heard about what had taken place. Now, why do we have these accounts, these two examples, one good, one bad? Why is this? Why is this in the Bible? I mean, certainly we know, right, that not everything that happened in the church, in the early church, not everything that happened in the church is recorded for us here. I mean, there are things that are left out. So, but why did God inspire Luke to write and record these things? Is this simply a historical record of that church in that place at that time? I don't think so. I believe this is meant for all churches in all places at all times, which means, church, it's meant for our church in this place at this at this time. What we have here, I think, is a welcome and a warning. A welcome into true community and a warning against faking it. The question this account asks of us, the question this account asks of each of you, the question this account asks of of us is, how do you view church? Are you like Barnabas and those in chapter 4 who view church as 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 a place of meaningful community? Or are you like Ananias and Sapphira who go through all the motions of church, maybe, but you don't really care about the church at all? Could it be, could this be, could this be why so many people change churches so quickly in our day and age? 
with no apparent concern for others. I think the lesson to be learned here is to stop playing games with God. To stop keeping up the appearances uh, when your heart is actually far from God. To stop being one way when you're at church and another when you're away from church. To stop pretending and be honest about where you're at spiritually. It's, I think it's possible that you're here today or, or someone you know, it's possible you're here today and you're keeping secrets. You're maybe one way with your Christian friends and another way with your non-Christian friends and the two are entirely incongruent. So is there any inconsistency in how you approach God? Are you guilty of going through the motions of church but have no real interest in participating in its life and ministry. If, if nothing else, this passage warns us to stop thinking we can get away with it. We may fool each other. Of course we may fool each other. But God knows the true condition of our hearts. If nothing else, it warns us by saying that judgment is coming and that hypocrisy leads to death. And so, maybe, maybe, for, for some of you, maybe, maybe the application here is to take Peter's question of Sapphira as, a, as an opportunity and receive it as grace from God and to stop hiding this sin of hypocrisy in your heart and just come clean. Because if we confess our sins, we're told, He is faithful and He is just to forgive them. And so there's hope for you. If, 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 if this example of Ananias and Sapphira, if you kind of find yourself resonating with their hardness of heart, there's hope for you that comes through confession and repentance. The Bible says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I'm thankful for that. In addition to this warning, though, oh, we are being welcomed into true Christian community. Just this week, I read an article that confirmed what most of us already know by experience. It's just nice now to see that there's some data to support what we know. For all the technological advances in the past decade, all the social media outlets, all the ways that our digital devices connect us to people near and far, the desire for meaningful human relationship remains largely unmet. In fact, according to this article, the number of Americans who self-identify as being lonely has doubled in the last 10 years. Which is when the smartphone was invented, by the way. In this age of constant interaction, we're actually growing more lonely, not less. Now what does this tell you? It reveals that we need far more 
than the superficial interaction we're accustomed to. We need true and meaningful community. Maybe it means putting down your phone and walking away from the screen to instead invest and participate in what God is doing in your life and in the life of your Christian community. Furthermore, according to the research in church, we need to hear this. Millennials, those 30 and under, those who are turned off by church for church's sake, they don't want to go through the motions. They don't want to harbor hypocrisy in their lives. They would rather just be honest and say, I'm not interested. But the reason they're not interested most often is because they crave authentic community and they rarely find it in the church. And that's why reaching the younger generations must, must involve efforts to deconstruct our sometimes fiercely held traditions if we're to stop merely going through the motions of church to instead become the church, to become the church for one another. At East Parkway, many of you know this, we strive to be a community for the cause of Christ. We're not there yet, but we're striving. We're striving. That's the goal. We strive to be a community for the cause of Christ. And I, and I want you, I want each of you to be part of it in full measure. This passage welcomes us into a community like that. It, it says, come be part of what God is doing here, it, which means things like women's tea and, and picnics at the park and... Uh, Days and baptism at the lake and, uh, and prayer meetings and Bible studies, uh, and service projects and missions trips and Sunday morning services that all of this, all of this is to further Christ's cause in our church and in our world as if we're, as if we're sharing the same heart and soul. I mean, aren't you amazed? I mean, is this just hyperbole? Is this just exaggeration? Aren't you amazed when you say, those who believed were of one heart and soul? I want community like that. So without oversimplifying things, there are two basic ways to view the church. The first is to see it as a community of people like yourself, who are learning how to love and, and trust God while living in this crazy world and advancing the ministry of the gospel. And seen from this perspective, we adopt a, a spirit of we're in this together. Not a what's in it for me mentality that, that led to the downfall of Ananias and Sapphira and so many others since. So let's not disregard the church or play games with God. Let's instead receive this as a grand welcome, just a grand invitation from God into a community of faithful, generous, caring, compassionate believers who are quick to encourage one another in life and ministry for the good of the church, for the spread of the gospel, for the glory of God, I pray. Amen. Father, we thank You for this time.
Thank you for reminding us of things that we probably already knew but are so easily forgotten. Please continue to impress these truths upon us. And Father, I would just pray that true community would would be demonstrated here. I'm I'm so thankful for the times we see it here at East Parkway, the times we experience it, and I just want more of it. We want more of it. We want a community like that where we can say that that it's as if we're of one heart and soul. God, give us that. We need that. We need that. And you can supply that. And so help make us uh, to be to be men and women whose hearts are not torn, where we're not one foot in the world and one foot in the church, but rather hearts that really are are continually poured out for the church and for one another and for the work you've set before us to the glory of Christ. Amen.